The reading is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, the story of the triumphal entry. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just, and just as you, you are there, you will find a colt, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw, the, uh, threw cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others, special branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our, future, of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went over to Bethany with the 12. Thanks be to God. And thanks be to Julia. Oh. Um, hello, everybody. Happy Palm Sunday. Um, so, this time last year, I was giving exactly the same talk, and I was thinking, shall I do something different? But actually, I think this is the most wonderful opportunity for us to reflect on this incredible journey of love. I think um, if we really understand what happens as Jesus walks into Jerusalem, it's so inspiring for our faith. So um, I will be speaking ex on exactly the same passage with just as much enthusiasm. I really am taking this from having watched a few films on, on the triumphal entry, and I find it very upsetting because, um, first of all, there's only about 15 people in, in shot, and they seem to be worshipping Jesus as God, and then they lose the plot and shout crucify him and it's very unclear as to actually what was going on but this is such an uh, uh, a key moment at, at which everything eternally is changed um, so I think it's really important that we understand what the different people are actually doing what the event signifies for the different people involved in it so I'm going to start off by um talking through what the different people are thinking is happening as Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and, and then I'm going to talk about the actual uh, act of walking in and the symbolism of what happens then. And I'm going to finish off with, well, what can we take home from this? So um, I'm going to start off uh, by talking about the people who were gathered in Jerusalem uh, when Jesus rides into town. And as I'm sure you're already aware, this event takes place at Passover. And Passover is one of the three great Jewish festivals at which people are expected to turn up to the Jerusalem temple from all over Judea. It is the time when they celebrate the time when um, God's judgment quite literally passed over his people because their doorposts had been daubed with the blood of the lamb. 
so God could lead his people out of slavery. And Jerusalem is jam-packed with pilgrims because everybody has been told that they have to be there. And we're not talking about an extra one or two thousand people. Um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us uh, uh, when he wrote a couple of years later that two million people packed in within those walls. The Passover pilgrims present, like those they are remembering in history, are once again ruled by a different people group. So they're clinging to the very many prophecies in scripture that speak of a Messiah King who will imminently come and start a second exodus. So with this in mind, everybody's looking out for the potential Messiah. There's been much talk about the authority with which Jesus speaks and the many signs and wonders he has performed. Most recently on his way up to Jerusalem, he has just raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead for four days. He then um, gives sight to blind Bartimaeus. And a lot of the other miracles that um, Jesus does, other people have done before, but actually nobody has given sight to the blind before. And in fact, um, this is something that was prophesied by Isaiah, that this sign would accompany the Messiah when he came in to save his people. And as a result of all this, there is a growing suspicion amongst the pilgrims that Jesus might actually be the one they have been waiting for. So you've got all the pilgrims there, but you also have the chief priests and the Pharisees. Like the pilgrims, they also probably suspect that Jesus is the Messiah, and they are equally keen to meet him, but not to show solidarity with him. They want to do everything they can to stop him from overthrowing the Romans. John tells us that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they organized an emergency get-together at which they all agreed to kill him. And at that meeting, they didn't discuss whether or not this is the amazing Messiah come to rescue them. They discussed the impact that his growing popularity was having on their standing. Because under Roman rule, the chief priests and Pharisees enjoy power and authority. If Jesus is allowed to continue one way or another, they will lose this. Therefore, the more that they see Jesus fulfilling the messianic promises and performing signs and wonders, the angrier they get. And John tells us that when, we, when they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, they give orders to anybody who knows where he is to let them know so that they can arrest him. All that to say that when Jesus rides into town commemorating the Exodus, he is met by a crowd, most of whom believe he is the Messiah King come to liberate them from Rome. And the atmosphere in Jerusalem is always volatile at Passover, but on this particular occasion, it was electric. So that's the people who are in Jerusalem who are gonna greet him as he arrives. What about the people who were with him? So Jesus has been with his disciples and some other followers who've come all the way from Galilee, and he's also gathered a further entourage on the way. And um, I think there should be a, a map. So I'm not very good at geography, I'm sure you guys all know. But um, Jesus has come right from the top. I've made that too small, so I, I apologize. But right at the top of the map, you might see in big writing, is Galilee, which is where Jesus has been. And right at the bottom of the map, 
is uh, where he's going to, Jerusalem. So it's an incredibly long journey, and he has been walking it. They obviously have been walking for some time because it's 68 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem. And Mark tells us that the disciples are astonished when he decides to go to Jerusalem at Passover and that the crowd that are with them are afraid about what is going to happen when they get there. And although at this point in time the disciples recognize Jesus is the Messiah, like the pilgrims, they think his intention is to liberate Israel from the Romans. They have yet to understand what kind of Messiah he is or what sort of mission he's on. So Jesus takes the 12 aside, try, try to manage their expectations of what's going to happen. And this is what he says. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus has just explained in detail the torture and death he's heading into. And then two of his greatest friends sidle up to him. If he is expecting some sort of comfort or compassion, he is out of luck. Let's read what happens next. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Or in other words, look Jesus, we don't know how you're going to do it, but we know you are the Messiah and it's Passover. We are no fools. If you're heading up to Jerusalem at this time, it can only mean one thing. You intend to take your rightful place as king. So, we just want you to agree to something before we get there. Promise that you're going to say yes to whatever it is we ask you. Well, James would like to be deputy prime minister and I'd like to be home secretary. What do you think? How can they be so insensitive? It's literally as if they haven't heard anything Jesus has said. My guess is they thought he was talking in parables because he quite often did that. And after all, he couldn't possibly mean what he said. The man who can walk on water, calm the storms, feed the 5,000 from a couple of loaves and fishes, raise the dead and give to the sight, is surely at the mercy of no man. And anyway, only a fool would deliberately walk into his own torture and death. And Jesus was certainly no fool. Given that they, as his followers, had left everything for Jesus, their families, their livelihoods, their reputations, and given everything to follow him through thick and thin, surely now they can expect to be rewarded. Move over, Rome. Make way for the disciples. Jesus tries to explain that his kingdom will not look like the kingdom they are expecting. His kingship is not like their kingship. Rather, he has come to challenge and subvert all systems that promise to put the world right by placing another set of leaders on top. Leaders in his kingdom, he explains, will, not be, the, will be the servants who sacrifice their own desire for the sake of others. 
not people who lorded over others. But again, this seems to fall on deaf ears. So it seems like both the people who are in Jerusalem and the people who are traveling with Jesus understand him to be the Messiah, but they believe he is going to walk into Jerusalem to set them free from Rome. But what about Jesus? What does he understand himself to be doing when he rides into Jerusalem? Well, like those who surround him, Jesus also demonstrates that he understands himself to be the Messiah King, come to lead his people in a second exodus. This is a linchpin moment. It's the moment that he steps into his inevitable death and our freedom and life. However, as he tries to explain, neither his kingship nor his mission are as they understand. Having read the many prophecies in the Old Testament, Jesus knows in detail what awaits him. But he also knows that this is his calling. He knows that as Israel's king, his crown will be a crown of thorns and his throne the cross. For he is the spotless lamb whose blood will be slain in order for the judgment of God to pass over his people. This is how he will lead his people out in the second exodus, freeing them not from Rome, but from sin and death. Up until now, Jesus has been trying to keep his identity under wraps. But now that the hour has come, short of shouting it out, he does everything he can to demonstrate that he is, as they expect, the long-awaited Messiah King come to rescue his people. Let's think about it. He could have come in a down season when nobody else was expecting him, but he actually waits for Passover to make his entrance because he wants everybody to know that he's come to lead them in their second exodus. And he could have snuck in through a back route late in the evening when nobody was around, but instead he chose to enter via one of the main routes in broad daylight with all trumpets blazing, so to speak. Like those he's traveling with, and those he is awaiting. Jesus sees this triumphal entry as the entry of a king coming to take his throne. Make, make no mistake, for Jesus, this is a deliberate, pre-planned, provocative act, bringing to a climax his well-thought-out, lifelong vocation. So we've got everybody anticipating the king coming into Jerusalem. So now let's look at the triumphal entry itself. Before entering Jerusalem, Jesus sends his disciples off to find his prearranged mode of transport, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Jesus may very well have been tired after his 68-mile walk, but I don't think that's why he chooses not to walk. Neither is his act of riding a donkey intended as a statement of humility, as some have suggested. Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem, as a supremeditated fulfillment of Zechariah's messianic prophecy. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. This is a deliberate, non-verbal claim to the throne. 
By the time Jesus enters Jerusalem, he has raised Lazarus from the dead and healed blind Bartimaeus. He has a very large crowd who are now following him. But that is absolutely nothing compared to the number of people who await him. Think not 15 people waving limp um, palm branches. Think a coronation parade. The crowds line the route and everyone is pressing forward, trying to clap, capture a glimpse of their future king. As he rides into town, those awaiting him spread their cloaks on the road before him and wave palm branches as if to say, we recognize you as our coming king. We lay our lives before you and we welcome you. And like a rowdy football crowd welcoming their team onto the pitch, at the top of their lungs, they sing out the words of welcome taken from Psalm 118, the psalm that celebrates the coming Messiah. The words they shout out are words of welcome to their king who has come to rescue them. Hosanna! Hosanna is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, and there's no exact translation. But it's both a word of praise and a desperate plea for salvation. So it's something like, Lord, save us, save us now. Hosanna, they cry, Jesus, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I can't believe it's going to be happening so soon. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Things are going to be restored. We recognize you are our long-awaited son of David, our Messiah King, and we welcome your kingdom in. Hosanna in the highest heaven. As we look at this scene, it just seems as if everybody is on the same page. Each person in their own way is demonstrating that they believe Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's come to set them free. But unfortunately, that is not the full picture. Few, if any of those who surround Jesus, understand what kind of king he is or what kind of rescue plan he has in mind. The words that they're using are definitely the right words that you should use when welcoming the king of kings. But the king that they're actually welcoming is a revolutionary come to set them free from Roman oppression, not a sacrificial lamb come to set them free from sin and death. Jesus is neither the king they've been waiting for, nor the king they are wanting. His exodus is neither the exodus they've been praying for, nor the exodus they are desiring. They are passionately welcoming someone they believe will answer their specific prayers for freedom from pain and suffering in the here and now. Not somebody who's come to bring them comprehensive forgiveness and eternal life in God's kingdom. That is why, in a very short time, their cries of Hosanna turn to crucify him. This isn't because they're fickle, as some have suggested, but because they are deeply angry with Jesus. By failing to answer their prayers, they believe Jesus has proved himself to be a fraud and they believe he has deliberately duped them. So they are filled with what they believe is righteous anger. Jesus rides up to the temple with their hosannas and blessed be the king ringing in his ears. However, he knows that their adoration is not really for him. He knows that he is about to sacrifice everything he has but he also knows for those who surround him, 
his everything is not enough. And yet he keeps going. Greater love has no man. So what can we learn from this? Myself, as I've reflected on the triumphal entry, I'm so disappointed with humanity and our response to this incredible act of love. And it's easy to write the pilgrims off as a bad lot, but there's actually no evidence for that. Most of those who surround Jesus as he comes into town are men and women of faith. We know that because they've actually made the journey into Jerusalem to, as the Torah tells them they have to, to ensure that they are right with God. And we know from their behavior that they are familiar with scripture, that they believed the prophecies, and moreover, they've been actively praying for their fulfillment. So how could they get it so wrong? And what can we learn from them? It's clear that the pilgrims rejected Jesus because he didn't fulfill their expectations. Their prayer had been for freedom from pain and suffering in the here and now. And when Jesus failed to deliver this, they wanted nothing to do with him. Their Achilles heel was that their faith rested solely on seeing their current situation change. And like the pilgrims, at some point, all of us will have to wrestle with what we seem to think are unanswered prayers in this life. That is part of the Christian journey. Even Jesus experienced this. When his prayer, let this cup pass from me, did not get answered in the way he had hoped, he had to trust God in spite of the circumstances. I think if there's one thing that the triumphal Um, entry demonstrates beyond question. It is that our Savior's love for us is unwavering. Jesus, by choosing to walk into certain torture and death for no other reason than to ensure we don't have to, has surely demonstrated that. Our faith rests in one who is faithful and true and whose love for us really is beyond question. The lesson I therefore believe we can learn from the pilgrim's mistake is this. Faith that cannot stretch beyond our experiences in the here and now is not reliable. If we want our faith to stand the test of time, we need to base it on the unconditional love that our God has for us and the certainty of the eternal promises he brought us on the cross. This is the faith that cannot be shaken, no matter what storms of life we pass through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, we look at you riding into Jerusalem and we are overwhelmed that the love you have shown us. We thank you that you care passionately about our suffering, so much so that you suffered for us. 
We pray, Lord, that you would give us faith to greet you as the King of Kings in our life, in all circumstances. May our hearts sing, blessed be the King. May our hearts welcome in your coming kingdom. We thank you that you saved us. And we pray that we would never take it for granted. Amen.